Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is an awesome founder and managing partner of Black Seed Ventures. His name is Cyril Luterot, and Black Seed is a Brixton-based seed fund management company, community, and co-working space, rooted in Brixton, but with global ambition. In this episode, we discuss the purpose of Black Seed. He introduces me to the VC accessibility gap, our black founders are over-mentored and underfunded. And frankly, some of the statistics are staggering. We also discuss how he started his career, his time in the US, and what the future holds for Black Seed. I say as a legend, it was great to speak to him in our offices, and he's invited me to his offices, which I'm excited about. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Cyril, welcome to the podcast. Cyril, we're going to start by discussing your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? Where I grew up was um, Ghana, West Africa. Prince migrated to the UK in the early 2000s. And I we migrated to a place called Streatham and basically went to a local comprehensive school there. During my time there, as you know, early 2000s, South London, Brixton, Streatham area was very notorious. And that being said, it was very colourful. So my parents' part specifically for me to escape that kind of reality and that kind of situation was basically, hey, like there's something called SAT test. It's called a standardized actualized mm-hmm. test. If you take the test, there's something in the U.S. called merit-based scholarships where you can actually get a scholarship and go to the U.S. So off the back, I had some kind of gift and talent. Gifted and talent, that being said, did these in the world. My GCSEs got really good grades. Parents were like, hey, you know what? Take the test. So I went ahead and took the test. I scored somewhat in the 80 to 90 percentile. My friends like, wow, like you did really, really well. Like you passed, right? I think if you actually have a tutor and you spend some hours towards this, you might get really, really good. So I spent about a few sessions and almost scored the perfect score. And when I did score that, what happened was I was able to get a scholarship to the initial university. So I went to university, University of Central Oklahoma, mm-hmm. but then rapidly transferred out to University of Texas at Arlington because Texas was a bigger market. Uh-huh. University of Central Oklahoma was smaller. And then there, when I got my scholarship, I had the ability to work in a lab called Heracle Lab. And Heracle Lab had all this robotics, all this AI, all these amazing transformative new technologies. And what happened there was I was able to be exposed to basically research and all these innovative technologies. Mm-hmm. And one thing I realized in the lab was fundamentally academia and research was 10 years behind commercial. And if I could capitalize that commercial aspect, which is 10 years behind, it might be an opportunity to build something really compelling and to build a startup or, or a technology that could kind of change and shift and impact mm-hmm. the world in a different way. So that being said, kind of dropped out um, informally and mm-hmm. basically took the risk. And All the best people do, by the exactly, way. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Build a, build a parachute on the way down, right? <laughs> so I jumped off the cliff, built a parachute on the way down and, and I glided and, and, and it worked. And, and at a time, I joined a fraternity called Sigma Chi. Sigma Chi is one of the largest fraternities in the US. A lot of huge congressmen, a lot of like notable John Wayne was a Sigma Chi. There's a lot of amazing people who are Sigma Chi's. And what happened was I was able to build my network and learn accountability and learn some fundamental values as a man, kind of like in your early 20s, you need to have, I think it's, it's good character building and, and a lot of values and stuff. And those values were really kind of aligned with that ideal, like 1950s, 1960s American values. But what also made me realize was build a network and network specifically of people in areas and places they have access to. Growing up in West Africa, growing up mm-hmm. in South London, I didn't have that network, right? So basically allowed me to get access to the doors. And funny enough, one of the fraternity members actually um, introduced me to one of my first investors. Um, his name was John Michelson. 
He basically was the CTO of CA Technologies. CA Technologies was a big kind of software company in the US. And he, he had kind of exited and basically said, hey, you know what, Cyril, I believe in you. You have big vision, you have passion, you have a compelling um, conviction to actually get this done. Can you actually go ahead and do that? So basically over a steak meal, we basically shook hands, took a picture, and I had this little check for almost 30 or 50,000 pounds. I think it was 30,000 initially, and then it got up to 50. What was the business? What was the- So yeah, I'll give you, so basically the idea was to build autonomous aerial platforms, and the notorious aerial platforms, let me unpack that a little bit, was basically essentially drones, smart drones. And what happened was initially when I had the money, I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, let me hire people and go. So basically I hired like an electrical engineer, software engineer, and then a mechanical engineer. Like, hey, let's build a product. Let's get a prototype. Let's get from zero to one. So the whole point was how do we go, first of all, from nothing, idea or napkin sketch to prototype and then from prototype to product, right? So those are the three main iterations I wanted to get to, to at least build an actual compelling product that can raise further money. So it took a while. Um, initially, we, we took that money, we built a prototype, flew a few drones, crashed them. It's kind of like hard to see your hard work get on build when it's actually falling on the ground and shattered to pieces. But one thing that kind of helped developers resilience and grip, and specifically the ability to, you know, I mean, sofa surf and, and, and e-rama knew those as part of the journey. You know, I mean, Airbnb or the greatest startups were able to do that. And I think what happened was along the way, built a team, uh, we were able to build a product and we were able to have some traction. So we had some customers, we we're doing a few surveys and sites downtown in Dallas. Um, but that also afforded me the ability and the access, as I keep mentioning, mm-hmm. to meet people in the construction real estate scene, people in the prop tech scene, actually provide feedback and customer um, information whereby we can integrate that to the product. And through that, I was able to kind of get offers of follow-on funding. Um, I raised almost like up to $400,000. And I think with that, I got offered a term sheet to not sell out specifically from one of my initial investors mm-hmm. to buy me out. And he offered me to buy me out for a certain disclosed amount. Uh-huh. And that disclosed amount was actually pretty decent for a 21-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it was a huge amount. It was, it was almost seven figures. But I was very naive. I thought it was going to be the next Steve Jobs. I was like, guess what? You know what? I'm going to do something. So you said no? I said no. Really, Cyril? Yeah. So let's just go a little bit into it. <laughs> so and what was the surveying proposition? And what yeah. were the, who were the customers? And yeah, what yeah. were you doing for them? So initially with that product, the value proposition was specifically like our tagline was automate your fate. And as, as much as it rhymes and sounds really, really great, the whole point was we saw a world in terms of specifically people not having the need to do mundane tasks. So let's say you need to clean your house, you need to survey a site, you need to get a package delivered. Rather than have physical manpower and labor do it, you have robots or you have some automation do it for you. And this was off the back of my TED talk, which I gave in 2016, talking about the fourth industrial revolution and how we could change that and so on and so forth. So that was my kind of thesis. That was my prediction about five or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And that if we could automate and change that, there could be some kind of cost saving in terms of money and time and also resources. So the whole point proposition was that, hey, guess what? Rather than paying a quantity survey, it's come out to do a survey for 50,000. Um, we could actually go ahead and do it for less than 20,000 a year. So you could do unlimited surveys for 20,000, which was a more compelling proposition. And then also specifically, you save money, right? Um, because you don't have the manpower, you don't have the time, and also the processing, because there's so much data that's being collected from particularly the capture of the survey sites, the height, the width of these designs and the, the blueprints that you need to edit it in post-production, um, which was easier to do with the drone because it had that, that kind of like accuracy and that kind of ability to kind of give you fine points. So mm-hmm. that was the main value proposition, which was needed. But one thing I learned specifically, if you build a product, 
that it's not ready to go to market or the market is not ready for, the market won't pay for it. Uh-huh. And fundamentally, like people say product market fit, I think founder market fit is one. Then also specifically market timing are the two main factors. I think those mm-hmm. two factors weighted across any kind of startup uh-huh. service make or break or success. And if you weigh those factors really, really, really heavily, you're able to launch a product that is somewhat sticky, right? Mm-hmm. So those were the main few things and that was the main value proposition for the startup, which was new robotics. Yeah. I see. That's cool. Okay. And then let's wind forward and, and introduce your, your current project. So Black Seed, what is the sort of elevator pitch? Yeah, I think I think we say Black Seed's response for the exclusion of startups and venture capitalists and then the specific startup and venture ecosystem. We realized that specifically venture capital and startups um, hasn't made its way to the black founder. And one thing we want to do is address that disparity. So what we say at Black Seed is, hey, Black Seed is here, and we're looking to find the next black Elon Musk, the next black Jeff Bezos, the next black um, Bill Gates or Sergey and Larry Page. Um, but we want to find them in London, in Brixton, in the United Kingdom, and we're starting off with with our first fund, right? So that's what specifically um, Black Seed mm-hmm. is. We're also a community, also a workspace, or fundamentally a seed fund that is back in early stage tech mm-hmm. founders. And give me some numbers on the percentage of, of Black founders that are being funded at the moment. Yeah, it's actually quite despicable. Um, it's less than 0.24%. And for Black female founders, 0.024%. You actually more likely as a black woman to win the lottery on a Sunday night than get venture funding. That's how statistically odds are stacked against black women. <laughs> it's crazy. So wind forward to then, so what doors do you knock on? What kind of, and without going into too much detail, but you know, what kind of investors yeah. are you looking for? So first of all, I think, I think initially when we started with the play, currently right now, we have some top tier investors backing us, mm-hmm. top tier early stage fund of fund venture funds that are backing us. What we're looking for is and now we have one public listed asset manager that's backing us. But one thing we realized is that specifically is, at least our thesis or my thesis is that ESG as a whole and investing in the whole remit of impact investing is becoming a norm, right? And there's trends and there's data towards going to create capital for good, right? What's happening with microeconomic and macroeconomic shifts that are happening there. And what we try to socialize is specifically the, the thesis or the idea or the ideology of specifically DNI as a sub-asset class. And what we realize is that, of course, D, E, and I is a underneath S in the mm-hmm. ESG. So it's basically a multi-layered approach in terms of building an asset class. And fundamentally, one thing we say in our long-term goal is to how can we unlock D, E, and I as a asset class uh-huh. and make it worth a billion-dollar asset, right? Because right now, everyone realizes diversity and inclusion is great because it makes you more creative, it generates profits. But how do you quantify it, right, on maybe on a 5% basis point? So how do you quantify and say, what's my ROI or what's my IR? Or how do you quantify in terms of metrics and performance? Uh-huh. And how do you de-risk the downside to know, guess what, I'm actually going to make some returns, right? So I think having the ability to prove that out and basically create a model that kind of shows that. That's yeah. one hell of a challenge. Yeah, exactly. Trying to quantify the benefits mm-hmm. of e and I wonder, you know, how does one go about doing that? Where does one collect data for that? Yeah, so it's a systematic approach. And I think the way we're approaching it, the approach we're approaching it specifically is a new approach and is a novel approach in the sense we are basically working with governments, working with large data banks and institutions to collect data. So we're approaching some statistical organizations, um, certain regulatory um, organizations to provide data because race is not collected when you register a company. So currently right now, we have at least 2,000 founders in our community. Of those 2,000 founders, we have about 100 founders that are venture-backable. 90% are 
at least we realize in the black founder community, are not venture back couple. Mm-hmm. They have opportunity to provide a debt solution or a revenue-based finance solution, mm-hmm. like equity or, or that kind of venture capital is not, it's not applicable there. So those are the kind Why of... Why are they not applicable? What are the sort of yeah. hurdles? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So one thing we realized was 95%, 9% of, of the black founders tend to build D2C or e-commerce business. So tech-enabled business, not tech-powered businesses. And the fundamental kind of like ideology there is that because you're building a tech-enabled version, there's still some customer facing and you can't fully automate your business or you can't fully scale it. So for example, you just need revenue or you need investment for inventory, for stock. Versus a tech company, you're basically raising capital to hire, right? And that's the main difference we realize. And, and the reason is because it's a soft landing point because a lot of people are like, I could build a product. I could create, let's say, a hair care business or I could create some kind of like grooming product or I could create a food dish or I could create some kind of custom product. And I could ship it and scale it, right? Or a clothing line because they're easy, low-touch skills uh-huh. that they already have that they could just expand on. But for them to get into venture, it means they have to, first of all, hire a CTO and hire someone who knows about finance, someone who can help them syndicate around, someone that can help them sell a SaaS solution or software uh-huh. as a service solution, right? So there's a lot of hurdles in terms of educational piece there, and that's why we exist as a community too, uh-huh. in terms of the duality approach. We offer not only just provide education, we help inspire and we help them get aspirations to say, guess what? It is possible. People have done it. Uh-huh. And this is the blueprint and roadmap to specifically build uh-huh. a specific tech startup mm-hmm. in that context. There. So let's talk briefly about your your process, mm-hmm. the sort of investment process. Mm-hmm. Because as you say, mm-hmm. you, know, you must get you know, hundreds, if not thousands of decks on a monthly mm-hmm. basis. You know, how do you whittle down the wheat from the chaff? Um, one thing we like to say to our LPs is that, hey, um, we're specifically in business saying no. And that means that because we're in the business saying no, we have a really, really rigorous diligence process. And what we want to do is, at least with Black Seed, the thesis is we want to back 30 black founders over the course of three years, 10 companies a year. So at least on a rolling basis. So basically not specifically doing a deal a month, as, as people might think, mm-hmm. but we could do groups or deals. But basically build a competitive proposition because when you're doing pre-seed or early stage, you're backing humans and ideas and that's the fundamental thing so you're back in the person mm-hmm. can the person execute have they execute before are they willing to scale so once we kind of get the whittle down of, of these kind of founders and these kind of people what we do is we create something called an IC memo so we say hey guess what send us your pitch deck send us your, your finance your financial projections you might have traction you might have some revenue customers and then we create a scorecard so you create a scorecard for the founder and say, guess what, do they score high on team? Do they score high on this? Do they score high on product? And based on that scorecard, we take it to the investment committee. An investment committee formed of other angel investors in the space and also one limited partner that sits on the investment committee. They go up to us and say, guess what, this is a company you want to back. And through consensus, we make a decision and back them. And then we underwrite them in the context there. So it's a somewhat straightforward process. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a competitive proposition or have your pitch deck and also your financial projections and all the different metrics and data for us to create a memo for the investment community to see. I see, I see. And actually, I would urge our listeners to go to your website at blackfood.venture because you can see exactly where you put mm-hmm. those pitch decks. Um, I want to turn though to the kind of businesses that are coming across your desk and what kind of businesses you kind of find really appealing. You know, you've mentioned product market fit is important. Founder market fit is probably more important. Where does that sort of investment philosophy lead you in terms of the kind of businesses that you're investing in? Yeah, so I think I'll unpack that and take a step back to the point about the DNI sub-asset class and how theory improving that. Because as a precursor and consequence to that, 
by us catalyzing the ecosystem, we realized the majority of them are e-commerce founders. So now we need to do community building and say, guess what? People that are in corporate jobs or let's say in certain places, we need to go to them and say, can you start a startup in this industry? So if you're a health tech person or if you're a fintech or deep tech or if you're a researcher, PhD, getting those people to spin out and then actually back them is a more equivocal approach in terms of getting these kind of companies to become unicorns. Because if you're going to go for e-com, then the problem is you're limited in terms of growth and scalability. Mm -hmm. So what the thing is, is going downstream and finding those specific founders and backing them is our approach specifically to unlocking that DNA asset class because they have domain expertise and subject matter expertise as a first approach. And the second approach from the founder market fit is a product market fit. It's once they have that product and they do build it out, how can we add value? Like, for example, it's not just capital, but capital and connections. Mm-hmm. So who in our network is, let's say, in construction tech or who else is in fintech, who else is in deep tech? And then adding them to provide value, whether it's a venture partner, advisor, or some kind of person that can help them grow the startup and add value. And one thing we do really, really well of is specifically hosting these events and building these community workshops. So we do office hours with a few of our partners, as you can see. Mm-hmm. And most of these partners that we work with have workshops or curated these kind of programs for early stage companies in that context. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we can dig in a little bit more to some examples of mm-hmm. companies that you've yeah. backed and kind of your investment process in action as well. Yeah, yeah. So for example, there's a company we're looking at that's a construction tech platform. And that construction tech platform is, is doing really well. They're doing 30% month over month growth. We gave them a small ticket almost a year ago, mm-hmm. very small ticket, just test them out equity free. And one thing we realized was that they were able to take that small investment and turn it into a five figure MRR kind of like mm-hmm. revenue. And then now they're going six figures. Mm-hmm. So one thing we do know is how do we get it from six figures to seven figures with our small investment ticket we're making. And with that ticket, if we could go from, let's say, six figures, seven figures, then guess what? We're able to add an actual X on that and mm-hmm. say a 10X return. And if we go from seven figures to eight figures revenue, then guess what? The multiple of the valuation of the company goes higher. So for us, it's like, as we're building these companies, we want to take a hand-on approach to help them grow and raise funding from the next round, whether mm-hmm. after pre-seed, seed, and series A. And then from there, what happens is our alpha goes higher. And then as a whole, because we're back in 10 or 30 companies, then the asset value of the portfolio grows. Mm-hmm. So what we're measuring on and our success criteria is how many companies can we take from pre-seed or early stage all the way to series A? And there, whether we hold asset, we manage it, integrate asset, or whatever we do with that company there is what we do with it. But the main thing is how do we get them from where they are from zero to one? Mm-hmm. Once we get to one, we can see some substantial returns and thereby proving our thesis out, which is, guess what? DNI maybe not quite a billion dollar asset class, of asset class, but maybe it's a hundred million or fifty million or sixty million because yeah. we got this portfolio and the management of X. Yeah. Right. Okay, if you take the view that there is a massive or woeful underallocation of capital mm-hmm. in this space, you roll that forward. Under allocation of capital means the needlessly high cost of capital mm-hmm. for said founders. Mm-hmm. There must be some quantity that you can pull out. There must be some sort of financial metric to measure that. Definitely. I think there is an attribution to that. And no question, as, as, as a black founder, you have to pay a premium, 100%. There is a right. premium in there. And even in our numbers, we realized that we need to make a premium because <laughs> they're being charged a premium, right? Which is a contradictory in that sense. But that being said, I think there's, there is a cost of capital for them to raise. Uh-huh. But what we've done is we've configured our fund to have limited partners for each stage of the venture cycle. Okay. So we have a seed investor in our fund. We have a Series A investor in our fund. We have a Series B investor. So what we want is we want to build LPs, a catalog of LPs that go all the way to the public markets 
you can go ahead and say, guess what? Hey, we've got someone that matches your industry. We've still got someone that matches your stage. We've still got someone that matches your thesis. This would be a good fit and start syndicating the deals to help our portfolio companies do that. So as part of that, we realized that being back found as hard as it is, but we want to help them and enable them to raise follow-on capital by making introductions and syndicating the deals into other limited partners and investors. So to that point, yeah. yeah. I wonder what role government has to play, both yeah. local and national, and whether or not that they have been an impediment or indeed mm. a tailwind to mm. Black Sea Ventures. I think we, we did have some basic conversations with government. I think we need to have follow-up conversations. But I think from the general perspective, um, there needs to be a lot more that needs to be done in terms of that. I think globally, there needs to be a lot to be done, but the UK is, is very dire out here. And I think government support and government allocation can help move that needle. I do know there are other institutions and other specific innovative kind of like academic research spin out kind of like type institutions that do support that. I think there needs to be a lot more because, for example, we know, let's say, a lot of our people are great in entertainment, they're great in music, they're great in other creative industries. But in finance, we don't see much. Like, out of, I think there's 11,000 or 13,000 fund managers in Europe and only four are black. It's crazy, right? I wonder if we can turn to the future and say, Elena, you're, you're an entrepreneur yourself. What does the sort of moonshot journey for mm-hmm. Black Seed look like? And, you know, what's the addressable market? Where would you like to see Maxi in five years' time? I think, oh, five years. So so five years, we would raise Fund 2. <laughs> That's the plan. And also what I do believe is that specifically with Fund 2, we're going to have a bigger size and it's going to be a, a European, North American, African remit because I think that's the main demographic mm-hmm. and that's the geographic sector we, we would have the most stickiness. But also specifically, I think the whole point was eventually after our first fund, we would have some data and some proven points and some pieces of what works. As I mentioned earlier, I think B2B, SaaS, and also marketplaces, they seem to generate the most unicorns, for at least from what I'm seeing, just from a power law perspective. Uh-huh. Um, and that seems to be the trend. So find more companies that way or steer founders to create companies that way. So that's why at least we see, and especially also in deep tech too, we do see a lot of trends there. But long term, I think the goal is to raise fund number two and at least have a billion dollars under asset management. Of course, five years is a, is a short time to achieve that. But we hope that with our consecutive funds that we do raise will help us to actually get to the point where we're managing a billion dollar assets because there are no other funds that are doing exclusively black. Seas the first dedicated black fund in Europe that does that. In the, East, the US and state side, there are a few people that do that. But in Europe, we're the first to do that. And I think... Right now, there are a few other players, like a few like Fortune 500 companies and FTSE 100 companies that are carving out exclusively like founder-focused programs that are trying to be in the marketplace and, and take some market share. But at least from what we know is that they're not actually investing capital. They're giving grants and they're yeah. giving like support. But for us, like you know, here at Black Seed, we say black founders are over-mentored and underfunded. So there needs to be asset allocation goes going to them rather than just specifically just like, you know what I mean, mentorship and, and advice in that context there. Mm-hmm. And so final question, and this is the question I ask most guests who come on this podcast. I wonder, Cyril, if you're trying to sort of knit together words of advice for some of our maybe younger listeners, younger entrepreneurs, what advice would you give oh to them and the skills that they need to equip themselves to be successful? I, I would say I, d- I just started reading on What It Takes by Stephen A. Schwartzman, CEO of Blackstone. Uh-huh. Really, really good book. And there's some insights because I think his journey is kind of similar to mine, not in the sense of him being a tech founder, but he was basically at, I think, Lehman Brothers earlier when before it crashed. And what was kind of really prolific and all the reading was specifically kind of like this point. But also pointing about the chapters and is basically saying, remove the obstacles, pursue worthy fantasies, seeing around corners and sprinting downfield. And I think 
for us running away to stage we're removing obstacles right and there's a lot of specific lot of work that we're doing in terms of like now that we set up the fund like we just got people running the back office now we've got people running the middle office uh-huh. and yeah those are growth pains and everything but now like how do we actually find companies that are worthwhile investing and if we're in the business saying no which ones do we say yes to right mm-hmm. so those are the obstacles that we're facing and then i think the last part specifically would be pursue worthy fantasy so take that risk and double down and believe in yourself and, and develop the conviction you know what i mean to jump off the cliff and build that pain as your landing because in this lifetime if you're not willing to take risks or calculated risks as i say i think you won't get the reward so that would be my advice sage advice Cyril <laughs> literat thank you for joining me thank you so much Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Cyril Luterot from Black Seed Ventures. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends or colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.